I'm Alka Kurian, host of the podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. This episode of the podcast is an adaptation from the Tasveer Author Meets event, hosted on April 22, 2021. It was introduced by Rick Simonson, the legendary chief bookseller at Seattle's Elliott Bay Book Company. For all of you who are joining us wherever you are, um on behalf of Tasveer, um welcome to this program. Um my name is Rick Simonson. I'm probably most usually identified with Elliott Bay Book Company here in Seattle. Elliott Bay and myself are good friends and um supporters and longtime um partners in many ways with Tasveer. And today um we are delighted to be helping um celebrate the publication of Sonora Jaw's remarkable book How to Raise a Feminist Son. uh the subtitle of which is motherhood masculinity and the making of my family as a book that came out just a few weeks ago and um has really been um drawing a great readership and we of course in Seattle get to see it with um her uh being here in Seattle uh but also it's been um mirrored elsewhere in the country and um in her today um doing this program with Tasveer um she will be continuing in a series of conversations she's had with the book and those have included um doing so with people such as uh, Ijeoma Oluwo and Rebecca Solnit and today um Seattle's own Alka Kurian who is a, a professor at the University of Washington Bothell and uh recently awarded a Fulbright award to go to Morocco which will happen uh, later this year um Alka's the author of Narratives of Gender Descent in South Asian Cinemas and co-editor of New Feminisms in South Asia and next year should see the publication of a new book Transnational Fourth Wave Feminisms a Postcolonial Backlash. Um Alka also um has written fiction we know um and co-directs the Tasveer South Asian Literary Festival and hosts the poet podcast for South Asian Film and Books. Back to uh, Sonora though I'm mentioning and we're obviously celebrating this um not to be overlooked for her since I've talked about fiction is um Sonora's remarkable novel Foreign which um is published and and has done nicely in India but it's a book that um we do have here in Seattle Elia Bay and it's a book that should be published here um uh we are delighted to be doing this and so you're going to now see Sonora and Alka uh please welcome Sonora Ja Alka Kurian in with your best visual uh, virtual attention and applause thank you both enjoy thank you so much rick for your very generous introduction in fact um, i think this information kind of got lost in somewhere uh, in the cyberspace that the second book that i co-edited was with sonora in this first ever collaboration between tasveer and the south asian films and book podcast i'm delighted to host our own sonora jha welcome to the show sonora thank you it's so lovely to be here with you alka likewise absolutely i think we are sitting at very interesting crossroads where we've had george floyd's uh, trial that's come to a very satisfactory conclusion and where we are once again coming together to really talk about what does it mean to be a non-white man in the western world the dust jacket of your book refers to it as a love story for feminists who hope to change the world one boy at a time I would nuance this further and claim that it is also a love letter to your son as well as to all our sons. All these days as I was living your life by reading your book and as I followed the choices that you made or you didn't make or you couldn't make it's been quite an emotional journey for me. I relived all the horrors as well as joys that I personally have been experiencing or had experienced as I raised my son as a single mother away from India in the west. and that was in the UK. I also imagined those traps that lay waiting not just for my son but for all of us immigrant women who've traveled across borders 
whether these borders are geographical or political, emotional, sexual, in every which way. And as I held my breath over what's been, what is, and what lies in wait, your narrative took me along really an untraveled roadmap, telling me what we can do to save our boys, that it's okay to have slipped up because we can figure it out in so many ways. So Sonora, would you like to start by reading a short passage from your book? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Alka. Thank you for this lovely introduction and for doing this. And it's such a delightful thing. I know you and I have had several conversations when we were co-editing the book and as friends. So I see it as, you know, two friends and two feminists having a conversation. So I hope that's the tenor that we will have today. Um, so I'm going to read from um, this section called, this chapter two, it's called, What If I'm Not a Good Feminist? But before I do that, I want to situate us also in the space that we are all in, especially those of us that belong to the South Asian diaspora with uh, the COVID numbers going up in India and we're carrying the, the horror of that, the sadness of that, the anxiety of that, as we all know someone or the other that's either uh, sick or has passed away in these past few days. And, um, and I couldn't help but think of uh, the Kumbh Mela, you and we were talking about that just now earlier. And I want to go to there's this in this chapter two. I'm 23 years old and I am in that same place that was meant for the Kumela, which has now caused havoc with, um, with the crowding and a COVID outbreak. What if I'm not a good feminist? I'm 23 years old and I'm standing completely naked in front of a tap trickling water in the middle of a busy railway platform in broad daylight at Allahabad Junction. Yes, in the middle of the platform, not inside a ladies' restroom, but in an L-shaped concrete enclosure that is tall enough to hide my body, but not my face. People are milling about the railway platform in this second oldest city of India, where both Hindu gods and Mughal emperors have left their patriarchal seeds. And if I can dare to lift my eyes from the water trickling down at my feet, I will look into the faces of men who have stopped to stare fixedly at my face as I try to collect enough water in a plastic mug to wash myself down. I am trying not to think of how easily any one of these men could step into the zig and then the zag of this enclosure I am in and see me naked. I have chosen to take the risk because my skin has been baking under the 106 degree Allahabad sun, and I have not showered in two days. My clothes covering me from neck to ankle and designed to give me the highest degree of modesty are close to giving me a heat stroke instead. So my 23 year old girl brain has chosen to let me take off all my clothes and run cold water down my body as I fight back hot tears. What am I doing here? Years later, I would learn that these taps of water and these bathing areas were provided as facilities for the 120 million or so ascetic sadhus who arrived at Allahabad Junction, mendicants congregating at the Kumbh Mela, the largest pilgrimage known to humankind, religious men with their hair and dreads as long and knotted as tree trunks, their bodies thin and naked, but for sacred ash and their minds afloat under the influence of gods and ganja. Where they wash their feet to rid themselves of the mud settled between the toes from miles of devout procession, I am now washing the soot and dust and layers of dried rancid sweat from hours of listless railway travel. These showers on the railway platform were meant for men. Almost all public spaces in India are meant for men. Thank you so much. When you wrote this passage, and when you actually experienced this experience, little did you know that this Kumbh Mela was going to become a super spreader in today's very dangerous times of COVID. So there have been several books on raising children with progressive values, such as those by Adichie, How to Raise a Feminist Daughter, Alison Vale, How to Raise a Feminist, Emma McCroy's kids' book about feminism, 
And my dear friend, Fazi Afzal Khan, who read a book 35 years ago, and she can't recall the name of the author, and she so regrets not having bought the book, and we can't, that book has disappeared. And the book was titled, How to Raise a Feminist Daughter. There's also a book by Mike Adamnick called Raising Empowered Daughters, A Dad to Dad Guide. So clearly, most of these books deal with raising children or girls as feminists. But in this very crowded field, your book, in my opinion, is the first intervention on how one must raise feminist boys. Talk about the origin of the idea of this book. So, you know, I was raising a feminist boy the way you you kind of have like this feminist lens or a feminist outlook. When I got when I had my baby, I, you know, I was so terrified that he would grow up to be like the the men that I had grown up around, violent men, um, you know, men with insecure egos and fragile egos, that I realized I needed him to be a feminist and to see a woman's place in the world to uphold the full humanity of women. And so just placing that at the back of my mind, I had this uh, desire to raise him as a feminist and for having the, the advantages of feminism for a boy to come to my boy, right? And we can get into that in a bit. But I was already doing that, um, but I hadn't thought of it as a book, right? I thought of it as my life's practice and just a value system that I was living by and the choices I was making, the feminist choices I was making in order for that to come about. But when I started to write a memoir after I wrote my first novel, I was trying to figure out, you know, what is it going to be about? It, it was definitely a mother-son memoir and we were so, sort of struggling with the themes and coming upon one theme or the other, but there were all these things happening in society that I started to respond to in political essays that would get published um, around, say, the Aziz Ansari episode during Me Too, and then, you know, campus rapes, um, you know, uh, things that happened to people of color and uh, Black Lives Matter and the intersections with feminism. So I would write those and also, you know, the, the, the terrible, just on my, the day before my 50th birthday, three years ago, um, the Katwa rape, you know, the, the, and the little girl who was uh, gang raped and killed. And, uh, I, you know, I wrote a, an essay about enablers and these essays, were getting huge responses and were going viral and people were writing to me from across the world you know, and across skin color and gender. And it would take me by surprise and also be sort of felt like this call to do more of that, to respond to this hunger for conversation. And a lot of South Asian women in, in particular would say, thank you for saying these difficult things because I can't say it. My family will be shamed, et cetera, right? So, I realized, okay, because I keep setting the memoir aside and responding to this moment, and I write that with an urgency, and you know what it's like when you are writing with an urgency, you know that this needs to be out there, at least it needs to be outside, out of me. Um, I realized, okay, that's what my memoir has to be, because that's what I am writing best, and that is what people are hungry for as well. And so then it became this sort of a solidified idea, and then just sort of poured out of me. What I got from your book is a very interesting insight into the ways in which there is a lot of women. There's a lot of people who are determined to raise their children, and in particular, their sons as, as feminists. You know, there are single women, and they're gay and heterosexual couples. They're queer and trans-identified people, you know, coming from a wide variety of race and class and gendered and ethnic and national backgrounds. But then we, we also know about a majority of people, a majority of women in particular, who are not planning on dislodging a majoritarian patriarchy, and they're not going to do it in a hurry, because they don't see any value in going against the grain. And in fact, you know, they seem to want to protect it. In particular, I'm reminded of um, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, who was a leading conservative lawyer and political activist and founded, in fact, Stop the Equal Rights Amendment campaign in 1970s. So what would you say to people like her? Yeah, I mean, you know, not everyone's going to be on board with this kind of a thing, right? Um, as Ijuma Olua was saying at the book launch, there's a, there's a market for this kind of book and there's a market for this kind of an idea or this kind of ideology, right? Um, but I think one of the reasons they're not interested in dislodging patriarchy 
and 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 for first i should say that it's not just women's work right and we know this we, it's not just women's work it's not my book is not one more thing for women to do for mothers to do now you know you've cooked for the whole uh, family now raise a feminist son that's the next thing on your to-do list right i do have to-do lists in there but that's not what I'm saying, I'm saying that this has to be a societal, it, it has to be done by a feminist village, right, which includes everyone um, and, and fathers as well, right. Um, but the reason people are not going to be part of this is because we haven't seen enough examples of a joyful feminist life. Right, uh, Sarah Ahmed calls the feminist at the at the dinner table who's always pointing out the issues the feminist killjoy, and she says, "Embrace that identity." You know, I totally embrace it. I can totally be the feminist killjoy, but um, we don't have enough examples of a joyful feminist life, of a powerful feminist life. That if you've made feminist choices, you haven't ended up in the dirt somewhere. You haven't ended up broken and bruised and and forgotten. Right, so. If we have enough examples of that, if we have examples of people of women, especially living on their own terms, right? LGBTQ people living on their own terms, enjoying life on their own terms, having lived a feminist existence and raised feminist uh, kids, then that becomes part of uh, an aspiration that becomes a desire. And I had some of those role models and I would look at their lives and wonder and say, how can I have that? And so when you start to be attracted to that way of living and that way of joy or that path toward joy, then you start to question why you are limiting yourself or your kids from having that. So all these things have to come together. And that's why I see that those of us that have a voice and have a publisher and have the ability to do this kind of writing, we must. I think these are very difficult systems to dislodge. We don't love women yet as a society. We cannot have that unconditional love that women deserve. Uh, and people like Phyllis Schlafly, I saw the show, I haven't read anything about her and I know that the show was problematic in many ways, but you do see her also having self-doubt and saying, I'm buying into this and I'm selling this idea of a conservative woman's life is at home. But she's straining towards something as well, where she's being put down and realizing that maybe this is not such a great idea. Maybe I bought into something that's problematic. I, I challenge any woman to say that she's living her most joyful existence within patriarchy. And in fact, I was reminded of um, an interview that I watched of um, Nawal al-Sadawi, where she's talking about, you know, like we must all lead this feminist revolution. And the interviewer asks her, what if it doesn't work out? She says, I have hope that it will work out. The history will tell us that it will work out. And she says, think about the lives of women a hundred years ago. We are much better off today. So there is hope, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and look at us, like look at how far we've come even, you know? Like look at the Me Too movement, for instance. Who thought yeah. that we could actually say, yes, this happened to me and that mm -hmm. we could name our perpetrators. And here we are. And that, that, that also ties into something that I wanted to say about that, that if enough of us are doing it, then that becomes the norm, right? It becomes normalized that we can talk about our rape. It becomes normalized we can talk about our abortions, that these are not things filled with shame. And Bhavari Devi, who was you know, uh, raped in uh, India, gang raped, uh, a lower caste woman by upper caste men, she said this, right? She said, the shame is not mine, the shame is theirs. Why should I be ashamed? If a, you know, if a lower caste woman and Dalit women have been telling us for the longest time that this is happening, you know, it's not Jyoti Singh that, that may, it should have may, given us a wake up call or woken us up. But if they've been saying it with so much to lose and so much at stake, then the rest of us really need to do it too and, and normalize it and say, you know, this is a problem and, and there's a lot of hope for sure. Like, you know, we can all, we can all march together and sing and dance together toward this this more equitable way of living. I'll ask you a question, which I will ask at the risk of sounding completely counterintuitive to my work, but I'll ask this question because the word feminism is a loaded word. A lot of people are uncomfortable using this term, you know, including some very progressive scholars and you, you talk about uh, Roxanne Gay. So why use the word feminist? Why not say that, you know, we commit ourselves to raising our sons in an atmosphere of love and respect and dignity and equality and care and everything, which a lot of us do in any case. So that when our sons grow up, you know, in this background, they emulate the values on growing up. 
So we'll have met our goal in any case. So why feminism? Oh, you won't meet your goal with that. In the same way that you won't meet your goal if you say all lives matter, right? You have to say Black Lives Matter because you're turning a specific focus on a particular problem, on a particular inequity, right? So if you're just raising a kind and gentle person, you're telling your boy for, you know, he will think that opening the door for a woman and, uh, you know, maybe buying her dinner, paying for her dinner is a gentleman, right? That's what we say, oh, he's a gentleman. He's, you know, maybe cooking occasionally and saying, oh, honey, just sit down, don't worry, today I will cook. Today I will babysit my children, right? Those are the, those are the strides and, I, you know, to be sure, like with my first husband, when I divorced him, people were like, oh my God, but he's so wonderful. He cooks, he takes care of the kid. And, you know, as if those are the markers of feminism, he's a, he was a very gentle, you know, the two husbands I've had are really gentle, nonviolent, wonderful men. And so it was very hard to convince the world and the world was probably convinced I was the problem, right? Um, but that's not what we are seeking. We're not just seeking gentle, sweet, respect, respectable and respectful men. We are seeking warriors in the cause for dismantling structures that privilege them whether they want it or not, right? Those privileges are already in place. So whether we are talking about white male supremacy or white male patriarchy in the US, or we are talking about Brahminical patriarchy in India, these are systems where even the sweetest men are privileged and they don't even know it. So feminism is a, a practice and a way of teaching them and showing them, hey, look, why do you get this and not the girl in your other girl in your class or LGBTQ people, why is she being teased? Why is she being told don't dress this way and you get to go out at night or be, you know, and be as late as you want? Why do you have these? Wouldn't it feel more equitable to you if you earned these privileges the way she has to earn them? That you have to work as hard as she has to in order to convince people that she's smart, right? So and so to dismantle those privileges to fight for the equity. Now my son is a software engineer and I don't, and I've, I've said, hey, what about this bro culture or bro grammar or whatever um, culture in, uh, in tech, right? Um, what do you do about that? And so I want him to be aware of that. I want him to know how much sexual assault is uh, a constant danger for the women uh, friends that he has, like that, that it's, it's something that they always have to be aware of. Feminism will teach him that. Feminism will make him cl clue him into those things and have him break down those structures. So I don't want just a sweet, gentle, respectable person. Although, so what, where Roxa Roxanne Gay is coming from is this notion, the word feminism has been so loaded because in the US especially, it's been white women's feminism, which has precluded uh, people of color and has and the, the particular concerns of people of color. And so when when feminism is defined in those narrow ways, um, then you have to sort of question like, okay, is this for me, right? Is this kind of feminism for me? But with Kimberly Crenshaw coming in and saying feminism has to be intersectional or it's not feminism at all, that is the kind of feminism that I embrace and you embrace, and we want everyone, including white feminists, to embrace. And then that becomes this expansive way of being a feminist. And that's, that's what we want to teach our kids. So reading your book made me believe that I raised my son all right as a single mother in the UK. I didn't think I was looking at it from a feminist angle, but I filled his mind with intellectual curiosity. I read stories to him. I read The Guardian op-eds to him when he was six years old. And I would say, mom, I love all this information and knowledge going to my head. The little baby, like in the nook of my arm. So that's adorable. That, that picture is adorable. And I yeah. Know. yeah, I know. Yeah. And you also talk about that. And I openly talked to him about his body so that he had the confidence to discuss anything with me about, you know, little when he was little and he would talk about him you know, having a crush on someone, how his heart had broken because Emma didn't look back at him. I took him to stop the war, protest marches. While I knew that he was developing his own personality and saying, like, why is my mom dragging me with her everywhere? But at the same time, I didn't think about, you know, preparing him for any top schools or top careers. I indulge his passion in, passion for music and would have been perfectly happy if he had chosen that career. But it was only when I came to the United States, 
And when I met the model minority moms that I felt that I'd done it all wrong. And I had this really interesting and very uncomfortable experience once. This is when I was living in Sammamish. One of my very good friends, she's absolutely no-nonsense feminist woman. And she said, she, she called me one day and she says, hey, she'd seen my son smoking in a park along with some of his friends where they were playing the guitar. He must have been like 17, going on 18. And the way she said it, I recall my stomach falling. Her words felt like, you know, someone wrapping my knuckles. I knew that he'd been experimenting with cigarettes. You know, I wasn't happy about it. I wasn't a fool. I knew what was going on. But I said, oh my God, I'm sorry. I had no idea. So I lied to her. And I said, well, thank you so much for letting me know. And my husband, who's a strong man, you know, who throws caution to the air, he was also feeling at a loss. Now, when I read that sentence in your memoir, where you tell your son that if he and his friends were drinking and needed a ride, you would be there, no questions asked. And you also borrow from Audre Lorde to make the claim that mainstream white women's feminism may not be adequate for your son. Given the above example that I've given you from our own life, what do you make of the mainstream brown women's feminism in India and the diaspora? Will it rescue our sons? No. No, because it's uh, if we have chosen to be marginalized in any way, to be other or choose a different path in any way, right, that you and I have, we are divorced women, we both had two marriages, you are still in your second marriage, or, and will always be, and I am, you know, and I'm twice divorced, right, we are already, we've, we've experienced a different path of life, right, that has already attracted disapproval. And that's already attracted scrutiny from a sort of mainstream way of being. Now, when you say brown feminists in India or of the Indian diaspora or South Asian diaspora, that itself is so varied, right? So we can't say it's of any one kind. There are many people who have similar experiences uh, from ours or, or you know, different experiences of being othered. Um, one thing is for sure that the kind of feminism that is tied very intrinsically with capitalism, which is about women achieving, right? Women uh, sort of living the dream of the capitalist life or the, the advanced career and the kids going to great colleges and their feminism and the success of their kids becomes sort of like a badge of having had it all. Like we have it all because I have my career, I have my kid, I have my husband, I have this grand home and I look fresh and, and amazing, right? That brand of feminism can be very problematic and can be a trap, right? So that is not something to aspire to. So yes, your son was smoking, my son might be drinking and I will fight for him. And this is something I, you know, I know it's kind of roundabout, I'll get to the point, but um, this is something that I remember saying to my cousins as well, that no matter what happens, be on the side of your child, right? Unless, of course, you know, they're doing terrible things in the world, right? Um, be on the side of your child. Do not buy into this thing of lo kya kahenge, what will people say? Because that is what undid us. And if I buy into that, whether that seems like the feminist capitalist dream or not, that's problematic. Now, coming to the kind of feminism that we see in India, which parallels some of the worst aspects of white feminism. And, and I have lovely white feminist friends and, you know, we are not, again, we're not saying everyone, right? We're saying the kind of um, feminism that disempowers others or does not bring everyone along. Um, we see that with Savarna feminism or upper caste feminism in India, which is not including and not passing the mic to Dalit feminists which is not uh, making way for Dalit feminists and is not responding to the concerns that are very particular to Dalit feminists and to Dalit men, you know, feminist women and, and men and people across gender, that is very problematic. And it sort of reflects the Western white feminism. That's not meant for my son either. That's not going to, even though he may have certain privileges from my being in a Brahmin family, I would find that very problematic and he would not embrace it and they would find ways to, you know, to other us as well. So anything that feels like a, that's coming from a white supremacist patriarchal culture or a Brahmin patriarchal culture is going to let our boys down no matter what. 
there's a lot of peer pressure on our sons from the mainstream Western culture that is steeped in anti-intellectualism, machismo and misogyny and racism and bullying. Now, if we raise our sons as feminists and anti-racist, telling them to go against the grain, that it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to cry, yeah? It's okay to make a mistake and, and own up. If we do that to our boys, how will they resist this peer pressure on the schoolyard? and on the college campus, and when they go into the professional world. So we assume that they are going to meet people that are very different from them. However, the world is changing. And what if your son and my son and, um, uh, you know, our, our friends, kids, and, you know, all extending outward, what if they are all raised with these values and they're not fighting on the schoolyard? So let me tell you this. My son has not had a single fight on the school, like a fist fight. He hasn't been on a single one in the schoolyard. He's grown up in Seattle. He's gone to public school as well as private school. He has never had that kind of experience, which we think, oh, that's bound to happen. So don't, don't name your child this or don't let him wear this or don't let, you know, and of course there's a lot of bullying and there's, you know, he's a, het a cisgender heterosexual uh, male. So he's probably avoided the kind of bullying and, um, and battering that happens to LGBTQ kids and et cetera. But if it's not happened within his circle, then it's possible that those circles extend outward, right? So I do think that we are seeing a gentler masculinity emerge in the next generation and the generation even younger than that. And we are still, you know, putting, we're still looking at it from the lenses that we've been given. And yes, of course, if that happens, then they have to call it out as an aberration and say, and, and you know, hopefully there'll be enough friends that will say, dude, what the hell are you doing? You can't beat my friend, that, that's wrong, that's misogynistic, that's homophobic, that's you know, all these things. And that schools have also been taught to catch that kind of behavior and not dismiss it as boys will be boys, right? So when we say this, we in a way are falling back on that idea that boys will be boys. I expect that when I send my kid anywhere that, that my child will not encounter that kind of thing. Now, when they do encounter that, that is where we have to change those systems, right? We have to make sure we're, we're changing those systems where there's violence and where there's uh, homophobia. And that's why intersectional uh, intersectionality has to be important, right? Like if Dalit men are being subjected to violence but, and, and say this, the story of Emmett Till in the US, right? That a white woman can still totally bring um, harm to my child as a brown-skinned man, as a black kid, uh, can be murdered. Um, you know, th there's there's that power that a woman can have over a man that's at a lesser stature than her. So in that case, what is what does feminism mean? Which is why feminism has to be intersectional and has to be fighting against casteism, against racism, against homophobia because otherwise our boys who are embracing feminism are not going to be safe. And if they're not safe, then they're not doing the work of safety of women around them either. And their lives are also very much controlled by you know, the media, social media, video games, etc., which lead terrible social and psychological consequences. And you claim that instead of living in denial of the media, because we can't forbid our children from accessing that because it is impossible, given how pervasive it's become. So instead of living in denial of forbidding our children from accessing the media, there is a way to make the media work for our children. How do you say that? Yeah, and I, I discussed this uh, concept of uh, co-viewing, uh, which a lot of scholars have, um, have talked about and researched, where right from when they're kids, we're watching films with them, we're watching television with them, we're playing video games with them, or at least occasionally dropping in and saying, hey, let's find out what you're doing. And, you know, maybe talking around that. And then even asking like without judgment saying, so what, what sites were you on? Like, what did you find out? What's going on in the world? Tell me about it, right? Uh, trying to kind of just give them this sense of this value system. Like, okay, these are the values I have. And hopefully you will take these further into your social media world, which is where you hang out most of the time. And look at in the pandemic, we are definitely, you know, kids are online and on, on you know, using screens upon screens upon screens. 
and we aren't you know vigilant we can't be right it's not like the playground where you can see the three kids that your kid is playing with now the world could be in your you know just like a few steps away from you and you don't even know who your kid is hanging out with or what sites they're on so sort of just keeping a dialogue around and bringing those media into your world and scrutinizing them and sort of like you know embracing them for for the fun they they provide but also you know, looking at a game like um, Grand Theft Auto and saying, oh my goodness, what is going on? So that your kid knows, and especially your boy would know like, oh yeah, this is definitely problematic. I'm playing this. I'm going to make the best choices I can. And then sort of like get it out of their systems. And then this is not easy and not, not you know, everyone is going to have the same results or say, oh, everything worked out fine. It's definitely a quagmire, right? Like, but but to the extent that we can do things, we can co-view with them and keep the conversation open. You place so much emphasis on storytelling. As you were raising your son, you read stories to him and sometimes you'd invent stories, you know, give different endings. That was really fascinating because it reminded me of how there was when my son was little, I was reading this book to him, but you had to guess what happened next. So you had on one page, you had the king and queen. They were probably counting his money. And then the next page, they're sitting in some kind of a balcony and there was a speech bubble that says, what are they doing? So he went, they're probably reading The Guardian. And I laughed. So it's interesting to see the ways in which he was connecting his own reality with their reality. And he was de-exoticizing them, normalizing yeah. critical reflection. Or when you say that, you would uh, say, oh my God, where are these feminist fairy tales? You know, my ex-husband, he tried his level best and he made him play the most aggressive football and the most aggressive tennis. My son he used to have these horrendous pains all over his body. I took him to the doctor so many times and it was terrible for me to see him suffering so much. And very quickly after my divorce, my son just dropped those games. And I once went to pick him up from school and saw him sitting at the edge of the schoolyard, playing with grass, messing around with, with soil and grass along with his friend and all the other kids were being very rough and rowdy and all. And I was a little disappointed seeing him being so placid. And I'm trying to make sense of my disappointment in terms of the toxic masculinity that I might have inadvertently become victim to. Do you want to talk to that? Yeah. I mean, we are all in patriarchy, right? Like we've been used, uh, women are, are the foot soldiers of patriarchy. We've often been deployed into going and policing other women and policing our boys, you know? Um, I felt that, and I say that in the book, right? I would feel shame when my boy cried on the playground and even my most feminist instincts would not, you know, get rid of that shame. I would feel like, oh God, I wish he wouldn't do this. Other boys are laughing at him or other parents, are, you know, maybe saying this or that. Uh, which is the same feeling you had, right? Like when the woman corrected you about the smoking. So we are, we do exist in this reality. And so we can't, um, we, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of live outside of that and, and um, entirely be these perfect feminist machines get our children to have these joyful lives and things. So we have to forgive ourselves at that point and say, okay, I understand that, you know, I'm, I'm going to feel this way. And, you know, I had, I write about this instance where I was encouraging my son, not encouraging, but I was sort of teasing him when we'd gone to dinner and um, there was a woman that served the server. She, he asked her a question and she responded. And when she left, I said, oh, were you flirting with her? You're 18 now, you can flirt. And he said, no, you know, she's at work. She's a, she's a woman at work. And if I start flirting with her and, and you know, women servers or waitresses get hit on a lot by their customers and it's a real problem uh, and they're required to keep smiling and it would be gross of me if I were doing that when she's at work. And I realized, oh my goodness, look at me. You know, I was sort of doing this weird teasing thing and I'm a feminist and, and I, you know, and now I'm learning from him that, yeah, you can't, you, you, that's bad feminism, right? So I think we, we have been raised in this thing, you know, in, in this sort of patriarchy. We will not recognize it all the time. And we will, um, we, our gut, our knee jerk ways of being will kick in. Um, as long as we scrutinize it and then not repeat it or keep on learning, 
that, that's part of it, right? Like it's a practice, it's not perfection. I've had women say to me, um, you know, that they'd like to advise me on how to find the, my third husband or <laughs> things like that. And, and they may be women who have never taken a risk in their life, you know? And I feel like, no, I, I would much rather take risks and make more mistakes and maybe end up with six divorces than play it safe, you know, or play it safe and uh, appease someone or, or sort of like say, oh, you know, men, men do this. And so it's fine and not to expect any better, right? So, so perfectly wonderful feminists are capable of saying those kinds of things. Now, I understand because, you know, we were just talking about the mistakes we ourselves make as feminists, right? The way we trip up that, um, that because we do that, I have come to find it, you know, find compassion and understand that, okay, there's going to be things like that. And I also have come to a point where I'm not affected that much by it. Earlier, these things would hurt me and I would, you know, be confused. And, and it was the sound of patriarchy that I'd grown up with. So I would feel a sense of lack even. I would feel like, yes, there must be something lacking in me that, you know, very, very briefly, I would feel that, that there was, that, you know, and that, that's why I, I keep walking away from men and what is wrong with me, et cetera, right? So yes, there are statements like that and, you know, and feminists saying, oh, maybe she should not look glamorous, not just with me, but other people, right? Like, oh, maybe she should wear her hair a certain way to seem more serious or, you know, um, she shouldn't be this way because she doesn't, wouldn't come across as intellectual enough that you get that at the, in academia, right? And I just feel, call bullshit on that. And I feel like, come on, man, this is not what we fought for. Put on your fucking red lipstick, put on your, you know, short skirt, go do your thing because you, you don't have anything to prove to anyone. And it's been hard, right? Because in the, in, when I was a young journalist, I dressed down, I would be like totally de-glamorized and not even wear cardel in my eyes. And I would, you know, wear these baggy shirts and baggy pants and totally desexualized, de-glamorized myself. Why? So there are those feminists who feel like, oh, you're not serious enough if you're not, um, you know, dressing down or if, if you're not trying to look intellectual. So, I mean, I just say that it takes all kinds and they're making mistakes just like we're making mistakes. Ignore them, bring yourself to a place where those things stop hurting and then don't pass it on to other, you know, I would never pass that on to the next generation of academics coming in to work. You should actually check out the women that we see, the feminists and scholars, some of the you know, greatest scholars that you see at the NWSA, the National Women's Studies Association Conference. My God, they've got the clothes and the hair and the jhumkas and the makeup. It's just lovely. Yeah. So that, that look has definitely changed. Going back to misogyny, I was struck by your comment. It's misogyny that drives boys to be beaten and raped. Misogyny from the point of the perpetrator, not misogyny. Oh, yeah. oh, of course, yes. And you also make a link between white misogyny, domestic violence, terrorism, and, and mass violence. Yeah. So if you can give me a quick response to that. Yeah, because misogyny is basically a hatred for women, right? And a hatred for what is considered feminine. So if you're going to hate uh, women and or fear them or uh, think of them as less than, then anything that reminds you of that, right? Like homophobia is the brother of misogyny, right? Anything that is a reminder of weakness or vulnerability or less than, or whether it's in a, in a very physical manifestation as uh, the, the sissy boy or, you know, the uh, the words that we use for um, gay men or gay boys, um, you're going to hate that, right? Because the association is with something that is less than. So you are going to want to lash out against that, right? Or if someone calls you that, you're going to bristle against that. If someone says, you know, uh, something to you as, and you think of yourself as this very macho man, your ego is going to be hurt because the association with a feminine um, form seems like um, slur on your manhood, which is why when people say, oh, that's, you're a pussy, right? You're basically talking about female genitalia and you're sort of degrading it and saying it's, it's something that's a problem or a feminine way of being is a problem. And so it, it's a slur. 
So, you know, a man should be able to say, yeah, thank you. Thank you for calling me a pussy. I am, I am in touch with my vulnerability and I am able to cry and I am able to be incredibly, you know, happy and joyous, right? Um, so those, if you have misogyny, all these things will be sort of a domino effect, right? If you hate women, you're gonna hate the things that remind you of them or the things that feel um, like abusive because, because someone says you're like a woman. And very quickly on, you know, what's the link between misogyny, domestic violence, and, oh, and right. terrorism and violence? Right. So let's say, uh, let's take Derek Chauvin, for instance, right? Uh, the statistics in the U.S. With, with policemen is that they are 15 times more likely to be abusive to their wives and their children than the general population. 15 times. So either these are violent men being attracted into policing or the act of policing other people is making them violent, right? Whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. But think of the misogyny in the police force. Now, those are the policemen that are going out and trying to deal with a situation like Makia running with a knife or whatever they say she was doing, right? Those are the policemen that are going out and taking this large man down, right? George Floyd, that could turn around and snap your neck, but you have a gun, right? And so you can, you, you can murder him in front of the, the world and no one can come and stop you, right? That is the kind of, you know, white supremacist violence, Brahminical violence, because you know that the cops are on your side, right? Uh, in India, for instance, you know, Brahmins know that the system is set up to protect them so they can rape uh, lower caste women, they can rape Dalit women, they can beat Dalit men, they can beat everyone, you know, downward, including their own wives, and their wives will be quiet about it and not tell anyone, therefore perpetrating it downward, right? So that kind of terrorism, that kind of um, horrific uh, impact that we see all of it is rooted in misogyny, right? Or, or misogyny sort of helps them perfect it because they can try out violence on women and children in the home and then extend their way outward. A lot of the mass shooters, when they look into their background, they see that they had a, they had a trail of violence against women and women had been calling the police a long time on these men and saying, hey, this is a dangerous man. But we didn't listen because we said, oh, okay, okay, this was just like a domestic thing. And, you know, uh, until they take a gun and they shoot, you know, tons of people. So we see examples of that kind of thing all the time. Yeah, I mean, and then, then there's the military, which, you know, my, my father was in the military, but, you know, that's also state perpetrated violence. And um, it leads to more, it leads to PTSD and more violence when they come back home. So family, you know, which is a site of violence, then becomes a training ground yeah. for inherently violent people or people who become violent, you know, as a result of seeing violence around them, you know, other men role modeling violence for them. It's an ongoing and job. It's an ongoing job. I will say that without blinking my eye, because um, I've said this before that I feel like my son mansplains and now he's become more and more conscious of it. And, you know, I can say that to him and he'll be like, oh my God, no, I didn't, uh, you know, protest because he knows mansplaining is a problem, right? Um, but, you know, there, there are all the time, there are ways of seeing that he still has to learn and I still have to learn. So then, you know, at a certain point, the joy is that when you say you're raising a feminist son, the focus shifts from raising to, feminist son, that he's already a feminist son now, right? And so how do I raise him or how do I stay in relationship with a feminist son, right? We don't have to walk on eggshells around the best of men because clearly they're not the best of men. You can expect better from the best of men. And if they are gentle and, and vulnerable, often they will be open to this kind of uh, feedback and say, hey, you know, could you try and be more inclusive? And here's what it looks like, right? So I think we tend to sidestep or, or walk on eggshells because we are still assuming that they can't do better. And I think that that's unfair to them in many ways. So if they are good men, we can tap into that part of it and, and they may surprise you. And because feminism is never perfect, my feminism, your feminism, his feminism, why would I expect my son to have finally arrived or that my work is finally done? It, it's never done. 
feminism itself is changing. Now we are um, enthusiastically, at least we should be, embracing trans feminism, which you know a lot of women are not, but they should. Um, and a few years ago, that was not something that we were doing, right? And we're not seeing the causes of LG and, and there's intersectional feminism. So feminism is growing and it's becoming stronger and better. And so the work never ends. We have to keep, keep developing it. It is hard enough telling your son that it's okay to be vulnerable, that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to be compassionate, right? You give the example of that, you know, this hyper-visibility and hyper-invisibility of black and brown bodies. When you point out that incident where the police pointed a gun at your son, thinking that he was an intruder in his own house. So it's very hard for you to tell him, it's okay to be kind and polite, right? Of course, that's the right thing to do. But how would you explain embracing this vulnerability to a Dalit boy whose body and mind are controlled by caste oppression, where upper caste men and women bully the lower caste into submission, silence, and erasure because not doing so could also mean their death. How do you then allow for a space for Dalit rage that is often articulated in terms of Dalit masculine and sometimes feminine aggression? I'm not advocating for violence. I'm only trying to complicate the equation. Yeah. I'm glad you're asking that question. And I had that too, as I wrote the, this is the Indian uh, version of the book. Um, I spoke to uh, Dalit feminists, including um, uh, you know, men and women. And I spoke to uh, Dr. Suraj Yingde. Um, and he was talking about, you know, because, you know, the hierarchies of oppression, right? So as a male, uh, what happens is, you know, that, um, a lot of uh, Savarna or Brahmin, you know, uh, caste feminists uh, say that, oh, you know, there's so much of uh, aggression among Dalit men towards Dalit women. And he talks about how when you have this system of hierarchical oppression, the Dalit male becomes a mediator almost like, like let me keep my woman down. Right. Because then I, you know, because I'm also being oppressed, which is why none of our, you know, as we, I was saying earlier as well, we cannot be feminists that Dalit, that, that kind of rage that we should feel, the outrage that we should feel should also be toward Dalit oppression. Because if my Brahmin man is beating the Dalit man, right? He, either he's already practiced on me or if he's capable of that kind of violence, that violence will bounce back on me. And, and so I'm not doing it just out of self-interest as a Brahmin woman. But once I have noticed it, what is the state of my son or my, my man where that innocence that comes from being vulnerable is they are being robbed of it, right? I, if I teach my son, if I let, and he says this, you know, that if you, if you let your young child beat up a child of another lower caste and call him bangi or whatever you are taking away you're letting your child become less innocent you're taking away your own child's innocence if you beat your servants or abuse your servants in front of you know um, um, your, your boy you are taking away their innocence right so and their way of feeling joy and feeling safe in the world because it's a it's it's unsafe men that like Derek Chauvin or you know the, the horrible violent men in India that perpetrate violence because they feel vulnerable but they don't know how to act or to show that they are vulnerable. So of course, when I I am scared to teach my boy to be vulnerable because he's a brown-skinned man and I'm scared for him, but. I cannot teach him to be violent because that's going to, or, or tell him that, okay, in this kind of a situation, you must, you know, kill before you are, you are killed. I can just pray that he, that, that there are fewer of those situations. And in order to pray, like, you know, whether you're praying to a God or you, you whatever you're praying to, you have to work towards that, right? If I am working toward making the world safer, I'm hopefully lessening uh, the, the possibility that my son or someone's Dalit son in India um, or, or in the, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, is, is facing either institutional or physical violence. Yeah, I was actually 
also reminded of uh, what Arundhati Roy mentioned in the context of hunger strike. She said, you can't go on a hunger strike when yeah. you're hungry, when you have no, no food. So when I'm talking about this Dalit rage, I was actually talking about it in, it in the context of a, you know, this political rage against the system, not this in, internalized rage then, which then gets articulated on the women. But that, that's a longer conversation to have. Would it be fair for me to ask you this question, whether your ex-husband, Alec, whether he saw you as this exotic trophy wife who he thought was smart, but not that smart, articulate, but only so much, and who didn't ask too many questions. Would that be fair? No, actually, it would be the exact opposite. Okay. Uh, th- those may have been traits that my, my first husband liked about me, but, uh, but Alec, in fact, um, I have not seen a man respect me and my life as much as he did. And he knew that I was smarter than him. We had we had this joke very early in our relationship, where he said, "You know, I uh, race doesn't you know race does not matter to me. I think of you and me as equal." And I said, "Well, I don't think of you and me as equal because you have an undergraduate degree and I have a PhD, right? And not, not not to be elitist, but to say like you know to sort of be, use it as a joke. I mean, I would I don't think people with lesser education are less than in any way, but it was particular to him. And we joked about it, and he knew I was." smarter than him in, in, you know, in many ways. And he absolutely loved that. And so he, he, uh, that's what he was drawn to. And that is why I was drawn to him. Because in my first marriage, I just felt like, you know, um, Rajat, my first husband would say, you're my diamond in the rough, but I was never really like the fully shining diamond, you know. Um, And so when I was the fully shining diamond, and I had a PhD, and I had a tenure track position, and I was brilliant, he was, my second husband was drawn to that and embraced that. And I did not treat me as the exotic uh, other. And that is why I was drawn to him. I felt like exoticized in fact by more leftist men and and put down many times by other South Asian friends' husbands. And I think the Indian male has to reckon with that kind of insecurity. And I'm not uh, doing a broad brush thing here. We have problematic masculinity in every culture and every skin color. But um, but I, but I also want to like turn that around and say that often we 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 have this kind of notion that a white man would only marry a brown woman because she would be seen as the exotic or oh because she, uh, the the Asian woman is demure and that's why you know and I I find that problematic too because I feel like why why is it so hard to believe that a white man uh, would actually be dazzled by someone's brilliance and someone's power. And, and um, you know, so those, those were the things that attracted me because he, would knew, he knew how to get out of my way. He knew how to empower me and, and, and stay out of the photograph when I was being photographed, right? That it's not, he doesn't have to come in and establish like I am the man, you know, attached to this woman. Uh, the, the, the things that I could not uh, tolerate and why I walked away was because of his stand on guns and and racism and of course these a lot of these things are linked but it became intolerable for me and I walked away from that. Most of us might have missed the boat of intentionally raising our boys as feminists. What would you say to a mother who has never talked feminism to her son, never shared anything about her sex life or sexual abuse to her son because this is what you advocate as well? It's a huge leap to make. What would you tell them? Um, I would say that it can start at any point. You know, I, um, my father, for instance, I feel like, you know, he was a feminist in some ways, like he wanted to raise his daughters to be strong and career driven and not uh, think of marriage as their ultimate, uh, you know, way out of anything. Uh, and even to say, you know, when he, he said to me, you know, marriage is for small people, marriage may not be for you, right? Uh, for an Indian father to do that, that was pretty remarkable, but he was also violent and he was also a problematic man. And, um, you know, but now we have a very different relationship where he has apologized and he's not violent. And of course that could be a, you know, factor of age, but, um, but he has apologized and he's seen his violence and he's talked about it. And he says that he's ended up lonely estranged from his children because of that and he it's his biggest regret in his life right and so I am able to push him to be a better uh, role model as a grandfather for my my son and so I think 
if, if he in his 70s is capable of change and of remorse and regret, then definitely our sons who may be in their 20s or 30s are, um, you know, it's never too late to start having these conversations. And there are in fact uh, opportunities for conversations with adult uh, sons that are even better than when they are younger. So I would say it's never too late, you know. Your book is honestly a very frank articulation of very personal experiences and, and, and instances in your life and in the life of your son. Did you seek permission from him? Yes. Um, so I told him quite early, you know, when I would write these essays and I would interview him for the essays, um, he would he would be fine, but you know, he, he was busy with his life and he wasn't uh, reading them necessarily. So when I started to write this book, uh, before I signed the contract, I said, hey, this is not impo more important to me than our relationship. So I will not do this book if you are uncomfortable. He said, I am uncomfortable, but I want you to do this book, right? And so he was very frank. He's a very private person and he's a very, uh, he's introverted and he doesn't like the, a performative aspect of feminist. So he doesn't want to be seen like, oh, let's see, you're the feminist son, right? So I've changed his name in the book and I, I uh, promised to protect his privacy to the best of my ability. I uh, did not you know, publish any photograph of him as the, the feminist son. And I've not asked him to be part of any of my events or anything. So he's, he's been very supportive. And you know, he even helped me with some of the research in the book and introduced me to his friends whom I could interview, et cetera, and you know, was very happy, uh, but doesn't want to be part of the, the public aspect of the book. And what about your family? Well, I, I told my father I was going to write about it and I didn't want to seek their permission because I felt like, um, well, with my sister I did because I really care about her and, and she's been a feminist. And I said, I will change your name. Give me a nice name that you like, right? And so she chose a name and the same with my uh, stepdaughter. Uh, I said, you know, give me a name that you, my former stepdaughter, and I said, give me a name that you like. And I think that was a fun thing. And, you know, and I got their permission to do that. And uh, the, the oppressors in my family, hell no, I'm not going to take their permission. They didn't take their permission when they uh, rained blows on my body or emotionally abused me. And, I, and they do not deserve permission. Most diasporic narratives paint the originary home as an idealized space, a place of longing and return, at least for the first generation immigrants, for example, in the namesake. You, on the other hand, chose to voluntarily exile yourself to the United States and have embraced this other side as home. Talk about that. Yeah, I love this question, Alka, and I'm glad you're asking it. I mean, I've loved a lot of your questions, but this one especially because I think a lot of our narratives, whether you know published in fiction or spoken of at parties, are about this, you know, idealized home, right? Uh, where that is not the, you know, that, that's not always the truth, right? Especially for women, um, we've seen the oppression that there's a reason a lot of us like don't want our daughters, for instance, I've heard from friends saying, oh God, I don't like, you know, uh, to take my daughters back home because they have to endure this and that. But in when we come back here, we, we sing the glories, right? Part of that is, of course, like, you know, we've been colonized. We don't want to tell white people our stories and, and wash our dirty linen in public and, and have, you know, this Orientalist kind of view upon our people. But we are also not uh, blowing the whistle on patriarchy and we're not, you know, so we keep talking about that world as, um, as this beautiful thing and oh my god I went and I bought my saris and my mother gave me these beautiful things I've played that game too until it just became too intolerable um, but on the other hand when I talk about this space right I'm not talking about mainstream America because mainstream America is full of patriarchal nonsense and it's not been it's not a place of comfort for especially for uh, people of color right or for women too uh, I'm talking about the particular uh, space that I have been able to make here, right? The, the world that I've made. So I was saying this to someone else the other day that the same people that attended my second marriage, when my marriage failed and I bought this condo and had a housewarming party, the exact same people were here, right? I didn't lose any friends. You would think, you know, like you think, oh, 
you know, twice divorced, you know, people will be ostracized or like people will leave. No one left. And that's the thing, like where if, if it could be whether you're creating it in India or you're creating it in Singapore, or you're creating it in uh, Nigeria, it's possible to create that kind of, you know, space that you call home, that in which you can live by your values with your chosen family, right? And, uh, and no one will leave because they were there for the part that is most authentically you. Right. And I am not my most authentic self when I go back to India. I feel like I love it. And it's so sad. And I want to develop a different relationship with my own country on my own terms and, and enjoy my country on those terms. Right. Being able to like go back and feel happy and like dance in the streets, maybe. I long for that, but I don't necessarily get that as the woman that broke rules and, you know, there's a, some kind of scrutiny. When I go back in terms of work or in terms of uh, having written a book or something for a book festival or something, it's beautiful and joyous. But I can see the inequities around me as well for other people. Thanks very much for pointing it out and articulating it so beautifully. You mentioned in your book that everyone has to find their own village, like you went in search of your village. And I'm reminded of what Chandra Talpade Mohanty says, you know, forming a, a family is a political act. It's a political act. You have to find your community, regardless of your gender, your sexuality, your race, ethnicity. So it's a political community that you form, a place where you're accepted for who you are. Yes, absolutely. It's a political community and it bends and stretches, right? So I'm not, I mean, I think I've been able to wipe out all the really conservative elements <laughs> from my life, uh, you know, and, and dance in this echo chamber or whatever. <laughs> but but uh, the closest friends are those that, you know, where it is an ideological, intellectual and uh, loving connection, right? Where it's, it's someone with whom I can be my authentic self. And so, yeah, it's a political act. It's a, um, and, and I wish that for everyone. And I'm not saying that it's not possible within your home country or you know within your traditional circles but um but i think we need to call out the elements that don't serve that because they're not serving our kids anyway no so well with that i would like to thank you very much and um, thank you not only for talking with me but thank you for writing that book thank you for showing the way of the ways in which you know we can create this community through an intentional act of political solidarity across all kinds of borders and boundaries and feel completely ourselves, feel the complete us. Thank you, Alka. And thank you for reflecting that and for being part of my community and my feminist village here in Seattle. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was South Asian Films and Books produced by Alka Kurian, the co-editor of this program is called Dibdol.